several years ago, there was a lady that used to come to my office and, and help me out. If you've seen my office, you would recognize why I needed the help. Her husband told me one time that if it was his office, he'd pour lighter fluid on it and set it on fire. I'm not much of an administrator. I'm an operations kind of fella, so when the paperwork piles up, it doesn't stop. It just keeps on getting deeper and deeper until eventually it becomes useless and I can throw it in the trash and start a new stack. But she would come and bail me out about once a month. She was a delightful person. She uh, smiled all the time. But this time, she didn't seem to be very happy. It was noticeable. Um, even if you didn't know her, you would recognize that something was wrong. She seemed to be discouraged, depressed. I said, Cindy, what's going on? She said, oh, she said, I took a, uh astronomy class last semester. She, she said it was incredibly discouraging. I said, discouraging? I said, how could an astronomy class be discouraging? She said, because it made me recognize how small we really are. We live on an amazing planet. This planet is spinning at 1,050 miles an hour so that there are 24 hours in a day. That's how fast it has to go. That's pretty quick, isn't it? But it's also traveling through the galaxy around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. That's pretty impressive, too. And if you were able to place a bookmark in space right now in one year, to the precise second, you could probably reach out and grab it again. That's how precise it moves. But there's something that they have recently discovered. They're not quite sure about it, but they're thinking that this is probable that we are in a... I'm sorry, my mind went blank. What do you call it? We're traveling through the Milky Way at 485,000 miles an hour. Does that give you hope that God is in control? It does, it does me. Our scripture today might be a little bit misleading. <clears throat> it gives the reader a sense of hope in knowing that God is in control. And I don't want to give you any indication that I don't believe that because I do believe that 100% God is in control. Sometimes we may not like the way he does things, is my point. If you've been watching the news lately, there's a group out there that we have affectionately been calling ISIS. Are you familiar with them? It's taken over parts of Syria and Iraq, and it's now calling for the Muslims of the world to fight to avenge the wrongs committed against their religion. You've heard of that, haven't you? Wonderful bunch of folks, aren't they? I'm amazed at how brutal they can be, how casually brutal that they can be. When they began taking control of parts of Syria, there were some horrific stories being told. One was of a death chamber, a slaughterhouse of sorts. And I thought, that's no way. There's no way that one human being can treat another one that way. So I started doing some research and found it to be true with pictures. It was a ghastly sight. A man that had been rescued from this place said that the executioner told him that because of his faith, he would not be executed. He would merely be sacrificed. 
What an awful thing. As they move into Iraq, their brutality continues. At one point, the fear of these men was so great that 30,000 Iraqi troops walked away from their weapons against 800 of these ISIS. Now they're the most well-armed terrorist organization in the world. They have a large cache of weapons the U.S. left. They have control of oil refineries, and they have hundreds of millions of dollars in cash from the sale of oil and from banks that they have taken over. When you see pictures of the Middle East, you often see pictures of torn up homes, obviously because of the war, but if you look at some of the newer homes, they're nothing more than stacks of rocks. But they have more money over there than we have. They're an incredibly wealthy nation, again, because of the oil. Mosul is where these soldiers walked away from their post. After it was captured, something strange started happening. Some of the citizens, including women and children, began taking sides with these invaders, even participating in the brutality. They can be seen cheering at some of the public executions. There's a famous tourist attraction over there around Mosul, if you're brave enough to go over there. Do you know what that, do you know what that tourist attraction is? It's the tomb of Jonah. Mosul is in the same geographical location as Nineveh. You're familiar with Nineveh? Have you heard the expression the more things change, the more they stay the same. Nineveh was known for its brutality also. Are you aware of that? There are some things that might surprise you about the Nineveh of old. <coughs> the Ninevites or Assyrians were not a bunch of half-wit mercenaries with a cause, which is the impression that I kind of get of what's going on over there now with this group called ISIS. The Nineveh Chamber of Commerce would have lots of things to brag about. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the largest city of the known world. It's in size, the Bible says it was three days journey across. It was a highly sophisticated city. It was a city of great wealth, of industry and education. The Assyrians acquired wealth through their war machine. The Assyrians were the first to use iron and steel in their weaponry. They would cover the ends of their battering rams with iron and, cover and, <coughs> and build a cover of iron over the top to protect the soldiers from the boiling oil that may have been poured from the top of the walls. They would push these battering rams up against the walls, and because of the canopy of steel over the top, they would be safe, and there would be nothing that the enemy could do but to give up. The odd paradox is because of their obsession with war, there's a strong growth in math and in science. The Syrians were the first to build aqueducts. Nineveh is located in what is known as the Fertile Crescent on the Tigris River. Aqueducts were used to move floodwaters away from their cities, but also to move water back to their crops. By the way, do you know how the Fertile Crescent got its name? The Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent is a massive floodplain. It's silted in during the flood season from the surrounding highlands, bringing rich, fertile soil. It begins in, the upper, in Upper Egypt, travels along the eastern banks of the Mediterranean Sea, that'll be important, and makes its arc as far east as Meda and ends at the Persian Gulf. It is huge. You've seen pictures of it. 
On a side note, you've heard of the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. There's actually stronger evidence that 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 wasn't in Babylon, but it was in Nineveh. They've dug up both places, and they don't find anything in Babylon that would indicate that, but they do in Nineveh. I'm not saying that that's true. I'm just saying that that was an interesting fact. (laughs) The Assyrians were believed to be the first to divide a circle into 360 degrees. They divided time and established the concept of longitude and latitude. They developed medical practices that were used as far away as Europe. Locks and keys were used for the first time. They are given credit for paved roads, plumbing, flushing toilets, and the postal system. The Assyrians were not only extremely religious, they were religious extremists. Even though they hated the Babylonians, they worshipped the same gods, hundreds of gods, but their supreme god was called Asher. And once and sometimes twice a year, they had hold a festival that lasted several days. It was a rather uneventful uh, occurrence. What that means is that nobody had to die. They also worshipped another god, which is called Baal. It didn't require a festival, but it did require a human sacrifice, and oftentimes it would be children. The Assyrians did not have a positive view of death. That's not what you hear about going, what's going on over there now. Now they believe that death is a good thing, if they die a certain way, that is. They believe that when you die, the Assyrians, that is, your spirit wandered aimlessly around in the underworld forever, unless you happen to be one of the chosen few, and then you were able to escape and be placed, now listen to this, in a pleasant island. That sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Even though the Assyrians worshipped about anything that moved, they had no respect for human life. (coughs) In their conquest of other nations, they would brutalize them, and the ones who were left would be forced to move and mix with other conquered people to destroy any sense of hope they might have. The things the Assyrians would do to brutalize their captive, their captives were unspeakable in the presence of innocent ears. Nowhere are the pages of history more bloody than in the records of their wars. They had grown to a point where they would no longer be tolerated by God. So God calls a man named Jonah. Are you familiar with Jonah? The story of Jonah is a story I've heard many times, and almost every time I hear it, it's told apologetically with a certain amount of reservation. In a sermon I heard recently, great effort was put into proving how a man was swallowed by a whale that had been harpooned. After several hours, he was cut from the whale's belly and survived, although it was several weeks before you could say he was, he was all right. And somehow, that's proof that the story of Jonah could happen. It makes me wonder sometimes if Jesus hadn't mentioned the book of Jonah if the book of Jonah would actually be in the Bible. Have you ever heard the story told? Almost like, hey, I don't really believe it, but since it's in the Bible, we'll tell it. It's a short book, the book of Jonah. It's a book of unbelievable events, incredible results, and few details. If it's possible to logically consider a story about a man who spent three days in the belly of a fish, let's see if we can do that. The book of Jonah is not the first place the Bible makes reference of Jonah. In 2 Kings, 
Uh, chapter 14 is where Jonah is first mentioned. It says, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath. Hamath is an important name to remember. Hamath is also a name that you'll see uh, and hear today. Hamath exists today. From the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amidi, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. That's where we first hear of Jonah. Jonah had, rep- had established a reputation of being a servant of God. I suspect he was highly uh, respected because of the message of hope that he brought and that this message came true. I would also expect that he was well known because of the success that Israel had. God had empowered Israel once again because of the things that they had endured. He proved himself once again that if they were to go back to him, that he could reestablish them. It appears that from the time he prophesied in Israel to the time he prophesied in Nineveh was a span of eight to ten years. He lived to be about 60 years old and was about 28 when he was in Nineveh. So he was a young man. How old are you, Tony? You're pretty close. (laughs) You ever feel like you've been swallowed by a whale? (laughs) In Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and condemn the city, to tell the people their great city is going to be destroyed. But instead, he hops on a boat and he goes to a little city called Tarshish. I don't think that Tarshish has a whole lot of significance other than that's happened to be where the boat was going that he got on. He was just trying to get away from what God had called him to do. You know the story, God sends a great wind. This is a great wind. The sailors recognize it to be of a supernatural origin and start looking for ways to survive. They pray to their gods, they dump cargo, but it makes no difference. You know, I was thinking about that. How did they know that this was a supernatural event? How did they know? And it occurred to me that by default I've experienced something similar to this, the supernatural event. And it was actually a great win now that I think about it. 2009, a tornado came through our little city in Ardmore. You remember that? We were watching it go through Lone Grove. We were watching it on TV, not literally. We were watching it on the radar, and it looked like it was heading right towards a little town called Springer, Oklahoma, which is just north of us. And it was heading straight for Springer. And my wife and I were horrified because it was a big tornado, and Springer was about to be annihilated. Well, there was a storm cell that was feeding the, the cell that had the tornado in it, and they collided. <coughs> I didn't know that's how that worked, but apparently so. The cell that had the tornado in it was headed towards Springer. The storm that was feeding the cell was actually headed due east, and when it collided, it made a right-hand turn, and it says it's going to hit six miles south of Springer. Well, that's me. I live six miles south of Springer. And my wife and I looked at each other and we thought, man, what are we going to do? <clears throat> so we hopped in the car and we thought, if we can just get a half a mile up the road, our road was all under construction and all tore up. We thought, if we can just get a half a mile south, we'll be out of the pathway. So we hopped in our car. It was a uh, similar to a Suburban. And as I backed out and started up the driveway, something said, wait a minute. So I stopped and I looked up and lightning flashed and there was that tornado right across the road. 
we wouldn't have been able to even get to the end of our driveway. So we pulled back into the garage real quick, and my wife and kids ran into the house, and uh, I was trying to get the garage door to come down, and it wouldn't come down, and it finally occurred to me that the reason it wouldn't come down was that the wind had started blowing so hard that the safety mechanism on the door wouldn't allow it to come down. So I shut the door and turned around to go find my family, and about that time the windows blew in on me. And uh, you could hear the rocks in the driveway. We have a gravel driveway. Uh, this tornado had picked them up and were throwing them into the house and through the windows. So I, there's the room that I was in, we'd had a bed set up, so I was trying to get under that bed, but I have to say I'm too fat for that. <laughs> I was thinking that if something collapsed, maybe I'd have a little bit of security. Anyway, that tornado passed over, and I'm not going to lie, that's a terrifying experience. And I'm not going to lie, I prayed. I prayed, Lord, if this is my time, all I ask is that you make it quick. <laughs> I don't want to be pinned in a tree somewhere for days. Fortunately, the tornado was moving very fast, and that's what one of the things that saved us. It did hit the house. It, it annihilated the house. It didn't take it down to the foundation. It took the roof off. The room that I was in, when I got up after the tornado passed over, I was kind of surveying what took place, and I could hear my family in the other room, just on the other side of the wall, and I could tell by the way they were talking they were all right. But the room that I was in, the windows were blown out. It had a big, huge fireplace, heavy rock. that, that fire, The face of that fireplace came off and fell, and uh, the bed that I was trying to get under was gone. Uh, there was a bookcase in that room that was about eight foot tall, four foot wide, full of books. It had all blown out the back door. There was furniture in that room that literally blew across the top of me, went out the back door, or went into the other room. We had other people's stuff in our house, what was left of it. Took the roof off most of it, blew all the windows out. The house looked like it was probably had been abandoned for a hundred years. And when I got up and looked around, I did something strange. And if you don't think it's strange, I'm going to think there's something wrong with you. I laughed. And the reason I laughed is because it occurred to me that God or that Satan can't touch you without God's permission. It occurred to me a supernatural event had taken place. When these sailors recognized that a supernatural event had taken place, what they saw was that they lived through something that nothing should have survived. They were on a boat that was tossed. It may have rolled over a time or two. Who knows? But what they do know is that there is no way they should be alive. That's how you recognize a supernatural event. They dumped their cargo. They prayed to their gods, but it didn't make any difference. Let me read just a little bit here in Jonah chapter 1. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, 
on whose account this calamity struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what are your people? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened when they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord. They feared him greatly, and they offered sacrifice. They made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Did you notice how the sailors had a spiritual moment when they experienced God? Now Jonah, he's in the belly of the fish. He's been in there about three days. He's having a little spiritual moment of his own. I think I would be too under the circumstances. Speaking of circumstances, wow. I know that when God gives a command, he means it. But to be swallowed by a well and to be in it for three days and nights... Doesn't that seem to be unreasonable on God's part? Couldn't God have given Jonah a little time to consider his options? Even the Assyrians were given 40 days. Have you ever thought about that? Does that seem a little bit harsh on the part of God that his servant would be swallowed by a whale? Is it possible that there could have been Another way? In chapter 2, Jonah is considering his options, but it's in the belly of the fish. And he prays, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, which is his prayer, but there's one phrase that seems to give explanation to Jonah's situation. It's in verse 9. It says, I will pay that that I have vowed. You see, I don't believe that this is the first time God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. When Israel was reclaiming their lands that Jonah had prophesied about, one of them was called Hamath. You remember that? It was the gateway into Assyria. Now, I'm only speculating but I can imagine that it made the Assyrians very nervous that Israel was having so much success once again. God had given them their lands back, and he'd given it back to them in a huge way. Had Jonah gone to Nineveh at that time, he would have had safe passage. He would have had safe passage out of fear, if nothing else. Because he waited, God had to do something spectacular to gain the attention of the Assyrians, to have the proper credibility that was going to be needed. So he sent a fish. And when Jonah had acknowledged that he had a job to finish, this fish vomited him up on what the Bible calls dry Land. Now let's visit that part for just a second. Vomited is an interesting word. 
young people use a word that I think better defines what took place. They would say that Jonah was hurled. Have you ever heard young people use that term, hurled, in place of vomit? But that's exactly what happened. If you study the word that is used there to describe what happened to Jonah, he was hurled out of the the belly of that fish, and he landed on dry ground. Now stop and think about that. Have you ever been to the lake? Have you ever been to a creek? Where is dry ground? In other words, he wasn't hurled up at the water's edge. He wasn't hurled just out of the water. He was hurled way back away from the water. What happened to Jonah would have been witnessed by anybody who was close. Chapter 3 starts out with God instructing Jonah, and it says a second time to go to Nineveh. The phrase a second time would indicate that God had only told Jonah once before. However, if you study that phrase, what it actually says is God told Jonah again to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey. A day's journey being 20 or 30 miles. They're certainly in better shape than I if they can do 20 or 30 miles, especially in that dry, arid country. Chapter 4 says it's a city of 120,000 persons. Um... When I read that, I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. This is a great city. It's 20 or 30 miles across, but it's only 120,000 people. If the city is, let's say, 60 miles in either direction, that's a total of 3,600 square miles. That's about 33 people per square mile. Would that indicate a great city to you? Chapter 4 actually says 120,000 persons that don't know their left hand from their right hand. It would appear that God is referring to 120,000 persons who are probably the age of this young man back here. So that means that the city of Nineveh would probably be a population of somewhere between 600,000 and a million people. That's a great city. So Jonah goes into the city about a day's journey and tells them that they have 40 days and then they will be overthrown. And it says, and they believe God and they repent. Two things to consider here. Why is there a timetable, that being the 40 days? And why have these ruthless and educated and wealthy people suddenly had a change of heart? I can only speculate that the 40 days may coincide with the worship of one of their gods, one of their religions that requires human sacrifice, or maybe a coming war and God was intervening. Maybe he was intervening in behalf of a mother who knew that she may lose her child to the sacrificial system that they seem to want to worship. The change of heart may have also been revealed in the message given to the king. And I'll tell you, I'm speculating here. Sire, there's a prophet in the city. He is a Hebrew from Gath-Hefer. His name is Jonah, which means the dove. 
The king snarls and says, bring him to me. I will place his hide on the wall with the others and put his head on top of that stack of heads over there by the door. The king suddenly realizes that Jonah would have to come over 500 miles to get to Nineveh. And most of it would have been under Assyrian rule. And there's no way he could have gotten a third of the way into the city without being seen. The Assyrians were a group of people that had a very distinguished characteristic about them at that time. And there's no way that somebody like a Hebrew who looked totally different than them could have gotten a third of the way into the city without being seen. The king becomes even more angry. How did he get this far? The messenger who had been in fear for his life now stands tall and says, when the tigress rose without reason, a Dagon spat him out onto the bank. The king's knees buckle. He turns ashen in color, and in a barely audible voice he asks, to what is Jonah prophesying? When he hears, he collapses, because now all the things they have done to their enemies, he fears, will be done to them. It could only be the result of a a supernatural event that would cause the arrogant people of Nineveh to have such a profound change of heart. You know, there are several places in the Bible where God has done something in a great way to cause people to have a change of heart. Moses before Pharaoh. The three Hebrews before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Elijah held the rain back for three years. In Nineveh, the supernatural event was a fish called Dagon. Dagon is one of the gods that was worshipped. Half man, half fish. Sometimes he is described as one who brings wisdom. There's history between the Most High God and the fish God. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2 through 7, it describes how the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken to Dagon's temple at Ashdod. The next morning, Dagon was found lying prostrate on the floor before the Ark. For many years, after Jonah's unorthodox journey to Nineveh, you would find statues and pictures and other depictions of Jonah and the fish scattered around Nineveh. You know how the book, the story of Jonah ends. Nineveh repents. Jonah returns to his insolence. Now, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. About 150 years later, Nineveh has returned to her old ways, and the prophet Nahum prophesies about the destruction of Nineveh because of the evil things that they did and how they would persecute God's people. But the book of Nahum is not just about Nineveh. It's also a prophetic book. It's not just talking about the times of Nineveh, it's talking about the times of today. Nineveh could be used as a description of the world today. Let's look at the book of Nahum. See if I can find it here. Just going to read a few 
just read part of uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> the Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Blossoms, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants who stand before his indignation, who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make it make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and those who are drunken with their drink. <clears throat> they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Chapter 2 in the book of Nahum goes on to talk about the overthrow of Nineveh. As I was studying the book of Jonah, I began to realize that the book of Jonah is not about the book is not about Jonah. It, it's 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 about the terrible things that take place on this on this earth, and, and this is where I don't find quite so much. That's probably not a good way of putting it, but that text that we just read um, in, in, in Luke, and it says the things which are impossible are, are possible with God. It, it goes from being a text of, of reassurance to, to being a text of, of maybe fear. Because the book of Jonah is not just about the horrors of Nineveh. If Nahum talks about Jonah, the, the book of Zephaniah, I'm sorry, if Nahum talks about Nineveh, the book of Zephaniah appears to be a prophecy against Jonah. And, and, and the condition of God's people then and, and God's people today. Let's, let's look at just a few things in Zephaniah. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedi uh, Jedaliah. Let me go to chapter 2, uh, verse 2. <laughs> I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove men and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked. Now here's where you're going to have to get your Strong's Concordance out. When it says ruins, it says it's a reference to stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, 
declares the Lord. If you look up that word man, it's saying hypocrites. I will cut off the hypocrites from the face of the earth. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. That was a troubling text for me. I looked up that last word, priests. You know what it says? One that holds the position only. Does that have any meaning to you? And those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Malcolm or they follow another. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth, in other words. And those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him, be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on a day of the Lord's sacrifice. I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with strange or foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold. That word leap twists on the, 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 the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out Silver will be cut off. Silver, money. Zephaniah is God talking about his people. Those who have stood up and said, yes, I will follow God, but don't. This was rather troubling for me. (coughs) My desire is to follow God. I hope that's your desire. But as followers of God, we have an obligation. And that's for those who are around us because God does not want anyone to be lost. He wants all to be saved. Even those people over there now that we call ISIS, he wants them to be saved. The horrors that they do, he is willing to forgive I don't find much forgiveness here. I find a God who is incredibly angry because the people he has called, in this case he's talking about Israel and and the remnants of Israel, are not doing what they were called to do. And so you see what has happened to them. I don't wish to be a Jonah. I don't wish, because I have said, God, I will follow you, and then don't, to be swallowed by a whale to impress upon me that I have an obligation to fulfill. How about you? I was talking to Jason back there earlier. We were talking a little bit about how Satan has managed to distort the things of this world today to the point where it's difficult to talk to anybody about spiritual things. Have you noticed that? Sometimes the spiritual things that we want to talk to people about are not spiritual at all. Because Satan has not just warped the ways of the world, he's warped the ways of the church also. And sometimes what we do is we get caught up in things that aren't spiritual, that aren't prophetic, that aren't useful in any way. And if we were somehow cast those things out of our mind and go back to the basics, a word that I like to use or a phrase is called primitive godliness. That is the necessities, 
the very things that your life depends on for your salvation. If we were to talk to people in that manner, maybe it would put off the things that put them off. Your homework for today is read through Zephaniah. Take an opportunity to reconsider the faith that you have, the commitments that you have made. Satan has done a very good job of, of getting us caught up into the things that we think are useful but are useless in a society that is, providing, that is preparing itself for heaven. Turn the TV off. I'm speaking of myself. Turn the TV off. Turn Facebook off. Get rid of those things that distract me fr from that moment, those moments that I should be spending with God. Maybe you struggle with some of those things too. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your, for your book, the Bible. History doesn't change. The more things change, the more they do stay the same. Your book says that there is no new thing under the sun, and it is true. And we read it and we study it. Satan has done a good job of, of confusion, creating confusion, but regardless, it is still the same. Lord, give us strength, give us courage, give us wisdom, give us want to, to come closer to you. Drive us, guide us, do something supernatural to remind us, although we have seen here that things that happen supernaturally do not solidify a relationship with you, sometimes it's good just to remind us that you still do exist. We live in a society, in a nation that has forgotten you, but not just forgotten you, but are willing to push you completely away. This has happened because of our silence. Forgive us for our silence. Empower us and give us strength. Lord, I pray that you'll guide us and direct us in all that we do. And Lord, more than anything, I pray that we will look to you for guidance and direction. In your holy name we pray. Amen.